You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Okay, I'm going to re- review a little bit of how I started this a couple of weeks ago uh, when I opened it up with Oedipus Rex and Job, and then last week talked about King Lear and As You Like It. And today I'm talking about Brothers Karamazov and... And next Sunday, I'm going to talk about Les Mis and Flannery O'Connor's short little story called Revelation. And, uh, but all along, what I'm trying to do is to say that, come in, that literature has a very powerful and significant way of teaching great truths to us, like all art forms. And we saw this in the first uh, lesson and when I went over a little bit of Aristotle's idea of what makes tragedy so important on us. And, and moving through a plot and identifying with characters as they move through a plot and experience tragedy. And remember, the tragedy by definition is not just that you know good, bad things happen to good people, but that bad things are the result sometimes of inherent flaws that people have that they're not aware of. They think they have been doing the right thing all along, but bad consequences follow from that, and they experience this. And Aristotle said, by identifying with the characters that experience this tragedy, we have a catharsis. That is, we identify with these people. We know what this issue is about, even though obviously we're not going to be like you know, Oedipus or like Job or King Lear. But we know what the life lesson is about because we have experienced these sort of things as well. And so we come to a greater understanding of ourselves, of ourselves in our own lives, of the issues that we have to deal with, how we are encountering forces, issues, people, dramas, ambiguities, losses, faults, whatever, that we have to wrestle with, that we have to come to grips with in order to make the most out of our life. And so good literature enables us to do that, to identify with it, to learn something about ourselves. Another point that Aristotle brought up, and that is he says that art is the imitation of nature. Now, of course, he wrote in Greek and not in English. And whenever Aristotle uses the word nature, he doesn't necessarily mean trees and creeks and air and birds and so. What he means is the order of things, that the world has a purpose to it, an order of things. And sometimes we don't know what that is. Sometimes it's hard to see exactly what truths are being taught to us, what sort of insights about the meaning of life are there for us. Sometimes because of our own ignorance, some because, sometimes because of the ambiguity of the situation. But nature has an order and a purpose to it. Art has this wonderful capacity, unique among us. In fact, if a Martian ever came down and said, tell me, Dennis, what's so interesting about you people? Uh, I wouldn't say college football, by the way. Uh, but I would say this. I think art is really one of the things that makes us pretty interesting. Because art is able to capture in vivid, symbolic, very much in indirect ways, a sense of purpose. It's able to convey in powerful, provocative representations, canvas, music, poetry, and in story, like what we're going to look at today. A sense of purpose that we're all dealing with, though we may not know exactly what it is. We may not be able to give an exact logical definition of what that purpose is, but art has a way of getting us in touch with that. So art imitates nature. 
And I, what I'm going to argue today is that this great piece of art that we're going to look at this morning, Brothers Karamazov, is a great example of that. And that purpose is going to be defined by the gospel. Now, I'm going to move through a bunch of these, so bear with me. That This is all Oedipus, and then we talked, looked at King Lear, as you like it. And here is uh, Dostoevsky himself. A little history of this with me. Uh, I was, a, I guess I was impressionistic like most juniors in college are, and, and I had a professor uh, who had a big impact on me, and one day he just in passing mentioned that uh, Brothers Karamazov was perhaps his favorite novel. And so I immediately went out and bought it and read it. And it's been with me ever since. And I've reread it a number of times. I've taught it a couple ways uh, in some of the courses over the years. And it had a profound impact on me. And when I finished reading this, and you may think, well, you really were pretty impressionistic, but in some ways this is a tribute to the greatness of the novel, I thought I was different. I thought something looked a little different because of the impact of the novel and what it had upon me. Well, the novel opens up, I've got to get it out. In fact, this is the original one that I had. I guess that was 1971 when I read this. Um, here at the beginning, you know, it's dedicated uh, to his second wife. And then right underneath it, it has this quote here from the Gospel of John. Except a corn of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that's what the what he considers to be the theme of the novel. That if we can understand what this verse is about, we'll understand what the book is about. And by understanding what the book is about, that is, art imitating nature, the nature of this book, the underlying purpose, what moves it towards its climax, we'll better understand what this verse is about. And so that's why I think Brothers Karamazov is a great example of the gospel in literature. Uh, Dostoevsky died in uh, 1881, just five months after this book was published. Uh, just prior to this, he had lost a child, a four-year-old child, uh, due to epilepsy, and he went in such trauma that he spent time, I forget how many months he did, but in a monastery, an optimal, and it is there in this monastery trying to overcome the grief of losing a child and moving on with his life, he um, um, ran across an old manuscript in the, the monastery called the, the Life of, of Elder Leonard. And it was a monk who had lived many years there in the monastery. That idea gave him the inspiration for this novel. And in fact, the middle part of it, which I consider some of the best part of the novel, come in and, uh, yes, you're not disturbing us? Oh, okay. Um, and in fact, Dostoevsky often said the reason why he wrote this novel is to record what he considered to be the memoirs of a particular monk that lived close to the town named Zosima. Well, he um, comes back and he begins to write this and he feverishly is committed to finishing this novel and then dies just five months after he completed By then, though, he was already an internationally known author. Some of you probably have read some of the other stuff that he read, which are, quite honestly, magnificent novels. Crime and Punishment, I think, is probably one of the most profound psychological analyses of the human soul that's ever been written. Uh, and the, the other novel that I think of great significance is called The Idiot, which is a wonderful, wonderful novel, very probing. 
about what true innocence can be in a depraved world. But uh, he culminates his career, and he knew this. This was his supreme accomplishment with his novel, Brothers Karamazov. Now, some of you have read Russian novels, and you know you 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 got to get a second cup of coffee, and you got to you know brace yourself, and make sure you got a notepad, and write all the names down, and who is related to whom, and so on. It, it's a full-time job working through a, a Russian novel, and this is no exception to it. The complexity of this is immense. There's the big plot, which I'll talk about in just a second, and then many, many subplots. And sometimes the, one of those subplots will sort of fade away and then come back and have a very tremendous significance on the movement of the story. But all along, what this is trying to tell us uh, is about the family called the Karamazovs. Now, I, as I was searching around on the web, I found a lot of interesting kind of paintings and drawings of the great novel itself. And I like this one for a number of reasons. The four characters that are in the play itself is the father, Fodor, over there on the right, and then three sons by two marriages. Dmitri, and I think, I'm guessing at this, that Dmitri is the rather sullen one over here in so almost peasant clothes. Uh, he is the oldest by the first wife. He's a very sensuous person, passionate, robust, earthy, uh, at times obsessive, uh, but always honest, always um, uh, trying to experience as much as he can. Uh, the next one is Ivan, which I think is this one. He's very famous. In fact, many people would consider him the, probably the center of the plot itself. Uh, he's an intellectual. He's skeptical. Uh, he is very guarded with what he thinks and says to other people. But in, in an interesting way, he has a very sensitive, passionate, caring way about him. And then on the one in the middle is Alousha, A-L-Y-O-S-H-A. Uh, he's the youngest, a full brother with Ivan, half-brother half with Dimitri. And a very sensitive person, uh, mystical, uh, spiritual. He is a novice at a, at a monastery. And so what we see here are three very different brothers from one father. The father is a scoundrel, he's greedy, he's a bully, he's cruel, uh, he's uh, a lecher. Uh, there's not much good things to say about him. Well, he gets murdered. And uh, Dimitri is there at the murder scene, and he is immediately the prime suspect. And he is arrested, and uh, it begins a very long trial, uh, in fact, a couple of of the, a number of the chapters in the book have to do with the trial. In fact, John, you might find this interesting, John's a lawyer. Uh, when uh, Dostoevsky was writing this novel, he consulted with a number of lawyers about you know, the accuracy of the depiction of the prosecution against Dmitri and the outcome of it. Well, Dmitri is eventually convicted of the crime of killing his father. Now, all along, we know that he didn't do it. We know even though all the objective evidence is pointing to him, we know that there's subjective evidence that wouldn't indict him. There's something wrong with the conclusion of the trial. And we find out a little bit why. Well, he is sentenced uh, for life imprisonment in Siberia. And he is being taken off. And Ivan, who has always been kind of at, at, at odds with Dmitri, but the one thing that brings Ivan and Dmitri together is their mutual hatred for their father, Fodor. But they are at odds with each other. Sibling rivalry uh, is very intense between the two. Alelusha, the, the sensitive, 
mystical one, sort of moves around from one to the next. He's no one's friend, but he's hard to get a hold of because he too is a Karamazov. He too is a son of Theodore. He too has some sensuous nature about him. Well, Ivan and Alalusha plot to rescue Dmitri as he is being carted off to Siberia, and that's the end of the story. That's the main plot. That's not much to it. I mean, it's pretty dramatic if you think about it. You know, patricide is one of the you know, major taboos, a brother being carted off, and you're planning to you know, rescue your brother for carting off to Siberia. So it is a very intense plot. It's not in and of itself is really complicated, but it's the subplots that go on in the play that get us into it, that draw each of us into this. And this is where, as a writer, Dostoevsky is without parallel, in my opinion. Well, maybe there are ties. Dostoevsky, I mean, Tolstoy is a tie with him. I don't think he's better, but I think he's the same. And many others, but he is able so cleverly to tap into questions that all of us are asking all the time about not just why things like this happen. Why, why do, you know, really you know, horrible, despicable men come to fate like this? Uh, why would anyone, you know, kill their father? But is more like, you know, how can there be such evil in the world? And there still will be not only justice in the world, but there still be an all-loving and all-powerful God. How can people remain committed and compassionate and loving and caring for one another when, when they do horrible things, when they don't only mess up accidentally, but they mess up willfully? How can we keep passionate, caring relationships that really sh should endure through time and be meaningful to us when people are just so stupid? and harmful to one another. How can we do these sort of things? I mean, those are questions we all ask, isn't that right? We all ask this sort of question. And Dostoevsky had a, the genius, he really was, he was a genius, ability to interpret that in the human soul and put those questions that all of us ask into these plots that move this great play. Well, we find out through all of this, as this is unfolding, that Theodore also has another son. Uh, named Shmerdikov, and he is a bastard son, as he is called, that uh, Fedor, in a drunken rage, found a, a Lizetta is her name, they, they called her the, the stinking one, the reeking one, because she's a street person, she's, she's mentally insane, and he basically rapes her, and she gives birth to Shmerdikov, and Fedor, I guess maybe feeling some compunction about what happened, brings him in as a servant. So here he is, the fourth son, bastard son. Ivan and Dmitri and Alusha know this, so there's no secrets about this, but I don't think many other people in the town know that he is the bastard son of Theodore. However, though, he is a most unusual person. Uh, he, too, is an epileptic. Epilepsy, interesting, as I told you, he lost a son, I mean, a I think a son to epilepsy. But also, if you remember, if any of you ever read, um, Prince Misikin and the Idiot was an epileptic. And so epilepsy, you know, was an issue that Dostoevsky had dealt with a lot in his own personal life. And so he has this, this, this odd character. Uh, he was a, a maliciously cruel person. He would capture stray cats and hang them. It was said of him that he castrated himself. It's interesting that Dostoevsky paints this man in such a distorted um, uh, 
skewed way, we find out he is the one who actually killed Theodore, that the bastard son was the one who actually killed Theodore. Much like if you remember when we were talking about in King Lear, Edmund, the bastard son, uh, was plotting to kill his father, Gloucester. <clears throat> well, you know, there have been a lot of speculation about why Dostoevsky wanted to depict Schmerdikoff the, the way he did, you know, as a castrate, as, as cruel, as malicious, as a person without any conscience. Uh, we're not really for sure. As a good artist, he keeps us guessing. He keeps us wanting to explore more. My hunch is this. Remember what I said, according to Aristotle, art imitates nature. Nature here has a purpose defined primarily by the gospel itself. That God has created a world and is committed to it, to redeem it, to bring hope and faith and love within it. That God is moving history in a certain way and, and it will culminate in the great resurrection of the dead and nature itself will be healed. That the, that the grave will no longer you know, hold and, and, and strangle people's lives. That they will, the grave will be liberated and and the resurrection will occur, and there'll be a new heaven and new earth, and there'll be a oneness of all things. But Schmerdikoff, a castrate, a bastard son, cruel, he's anti-nature. He's a distortion of nature. He's not what we ought to be. So he represents evil in all this. Now, this is, this is the philosopher coming out in me. Uh, evil is the perversion of what is good. It is the corruption of it. Evil is, in a sense, as Augustine, the famous Christian theologian, said, it is the deprivation of good. It is the taking out of goodness itself, like a parasite takes life out of a living thing. Evil is not a thing in and of itself. It is a negative thing. And so here's Schmerdikoff committing patricide, a negative thing. He does it because he, too, is distorted. He is contrary to nature. He's like a cancerous growth on what is proper. And so Dostoevsky, in a sense, interestingly setting up these, these brothers in this way, is trying to communicate, I think, a profound Christian truth that's shaped you know, from Genesis to the end, that God had created the world in a good way. It is good to be part of God's creation. The world in and of itself is inherently good. It's the distortion of the human will. It is the corruption of the human heart that has brought all the, the crime, the wickedness, the sadness, the darkness, and cruelty in the world. And so evil is something that we need to combat, and we combat it with goodness. And this is going to become a key point by the time we get to the end of the novel. We don't overcome distortions in nature with something more distorted. We don't overcome you know, brutality and, and destructiveness with things that are more brutal and destructive. We don't overcome perversion with things that are perverse. The only way to really overcome this tendency that is in the human heart that becomes embodied in individuals and nations itself, that just seeks to destroy and harm and maim things, is not with more destructive power, but with like a corn that falls to the ground. What must it do to bear fruit? It must die. The Christian message to the great novel is that the power that the church has, that the gospel here instructs us on the, the power that will transform the world that will bring light into darkness, that will heal the human heart, is, is love. It's sacrificial love. It's being able to suffer for the world. It's being able to bear the misery of the world, not run from it or suppress it. It's the ability that we have to draw other people's suffering into our own hearts. 
It's the ability of the church to be able to stand on other people's behalf, even the sinful people of the world. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> to stand on their behalf so that God, through the church, will bring redemption even to those people who do not live in any redeemed way, just like Shmerdikov is. <coughs> one of the great plots, subplots, we already know what the basic plot is, but one of the great, <coughs> pardon me, one of the great subplots in the novel is the relationship between Ivan and Alleluia. <coughs> Remember, Ivan is the intellectual, the skeptic. He's an atheist, avowed atheist. Alalusa is the youngest of the three, tender, sensitive, caring, and wants to be a monk. They have an interesting relationship with one another, of mutual respect and kindness to one another. Each is fascinated with each other. In fact, near the end of the novel, Ivan says, no, 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 in the middle of the novel, Ivan says to Alalusa, as long as I know you are somewhere in the world, I will have hope. But he's an atheist. Well, the, uh, at the, the first half of the novel, we don't see much interaction between Ivan and Alalusa. But in the middle of it, there's this magnificent chapter, chapter five, called Pro and Contra. Interesting title, For and Against. Are we for believing that God can still be the God of the world filled with evil? Or are we against the idea that there can still be an all-loving and all-powerful God and there be such mayhem and misery in creation? Which one are we for? Ivan, in a chapter called Rebellion, <clears throat> is making a case that the world itself disproves that there's a loving God. It doesn't necessarily disprove that there's a God. It just disproves that there's a loving God. And that the amount of evil and suffering in the world is so monumental, no rational person could ever believe God created the world and it's the way God wanted it to be. And so he elects to reject any kind of theism because of the misery of the world. And he tells a story. In fact, there are a couple of them. And one story is that he heard of a, a very a, a boy, a peasant boy with his mother in the town. He has a rock and he throws the rock, not intending to hit the paw of a hound, but he does. And he, he harms the dog. Well, the dog belonged to the general. And the general is so incensed by this that he had the child locked up. And the next day, he let the child out and told him to run. And when he did, he sicked his team of hounds on that boy and they tore him to pieces. Atrocious. Can you think of anything? I mean, there's a lot of evil in the world, but that, that obviously is an evil thing. How can that fit with any kind of rational plan, orderly plan, divine notion of goodness in the world? How can that fit? And Ivan is telling Alalusa this, and Alalusa is crying during this time. The pain that was in the story was overwhelming. And so Ivan says to him, it's not that I necessarily uh, don't believe in God. I just don't believe in the world that he made. And he said, I don't necessarily believe that there's a devil, but we have made the devil after our own image. 
the level of evil and suffering in the world is too great to believe that there's a God involved in this world. And Ivan then says, if one were to tell me, and this is sort of a typical kind of theological response to evil and suffering, isn't it? These are questions we've asked, and I know sometimes we've answered this way, that in some way in the grand sort of divine scheme of things, it fits. That one day we'll be able to see how those hounds tearing to pieces that little boy was needed in order to complete a grand divine scheme of things. A lot of people theologically come up with that kind of explanation. That's how they deal with evil and suffering. That, 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 that kind of pain and loss and misery is so great, we've got to come up with something. It's too horrifying to think that this is reality, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, we're, we're not strong enough emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, to be able to handle the idea that, you know, you know gas houses and, and lynchings and, and starvation and, and, you know, just, you know, poisonous hatred is the last word. We've got to come up with some explanation. And so we come up with one like that. It fits, and we'll find out one day. Ivan then says one of the most profound things that Dostoevsky writes in the novel, and one of the most highly quoted, most quoted lines in all of the novel, in which he says, well, I respectfully give back my ticket. Like when you go to a movie, you get a ticket, or a play, you get a ticket to go in, it allows you to watch it. Ivan says, if this is, if this is the plot, if God wanted that little boy ripped to pieces by those hounds, I'm not watching. I'm not part of this. I give it back. That idea is called by Albert Camus, who I think is a magnificent writer, even though I'm a theist and he's not. I think he's close, but I don't think he was. Uh, he was very honest, sincere. Albert Camus, uh, the Algerian French-speaking uh, writing, Nobel Prize-winning writer of, of The Stranger and many other things, The Myth of Sisyphus. He said of this, of Ivan, this is what he called metaphysical rebellion. Metaphysical rebellion. We reject the world. It's not just that I don't find God. It's not that I haven't had an epiphany or a revelation, a Sinai experience, that I'm at war with the world. I reject it. And if you think God made this world, then you are a fool. And I am handing back my ticket. Well, uh, Aloysius just, he's just wrung out by this. His sensitive spirit is just, you know, just stretched. And he says to Ivan, and we don't know whether he says it loudly or accusingly, I want to think that Alalusa just barely whispers this. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. I think Alalusa also knew what that meant. I think he also articulated in his own heart that same kind of dilemma, perplexity. How can there be an all-loving and powerful God and such evil in the world? That's rebellion. Well, we've got to be careful about this. There's got to be another way to think about it. Well, Ivan then follows this with also one of the most quoted parts of the whole novel. And maybe back in your old college days, and there are two Sanford college students here, have any, have any, any of the stuff you've read at Sanford include the Grand Inquisitor in it in an anthology. You've seen that? Well, it should. Any of you, read, any of you ever read the Grand Inquisitor in an anthology? Gil, you have? Yeah, I, I see it often. Uh, and it's probably the most read, play, read portion of the novel. 
it is an incredibly astute, probing, troubling uh, analysis of, of the gospel in the world. Uh, Ivan calls it a poem. It's not, though, in meter, it's in prose. And he says, we're back in Seville, Spain, during the height of the Inquisition, and the Grand Inquisitor is burning heretics daily. And one day, within the city, there's a commotion, and he looks out the window, and he sees what it is. Jesus is walking in the streets. At first, no one recognizes him. He doesn't say anything. And then it dawns on people that Jesus, the Lord, is walking in the streets. And people are coming up to him, you know, speaking to him, holding him, and hugging him. But the Grand, in but the grand Inquisitor is suspicious, for so he has Jesus arrested. And he tries him, and he says, it's a mistake for you to come here. You have given us the church, the mystery, the miracle, and the authority. And that's what these people want. They don't want freedom. They don't want responsibility. They don't want to live with the unknown, waiting for the resurrection of the dead. They want answers, solutions power and control now in their lives. This is what they want. And this is what we give them. We give them mystery. That is, they don't figure us out. We give them miracle. We control the sacraments. And we give them authority. It is through us and through us alone that they have hope. And these people, when they finally realize that you're not giving them security, but freedom, you're not giving them control over their lives, but responsibility for their lives. They will crucify you again. Good question. Which do we value the most? Security and control? Or freedom and responsibility? If you had the chance to be able uh, to make that choice, which one would you choose? Now, to explain this, it, I, I, this, I've used this often. I think it's one of the more insightful things that Dostoevsky does in the novel. He goes back to the three temptations of Christ. You know, the three temptations of, you know, change stones to bread, uh, throw yourself off the, 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 the temple and the angels will catch you and all the nations of the world will come and worship you. If you'll just do those things, if you'll just bow down to me, these things will happen. You'll change stones to bread. And Jesus rejected every one of those. What's so provocative about that is, uh, would you? If you had the ability to change stones to bread, look at what you could do. You could feed all the poor. You could be not only immensely wealthy, you could make everybody immensely wealthy, couldn't you? If you had the goose that laid the golden egg, you know, if, 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 what's the other thing that he found? The golden harp. If, if you had all those things, you have instant wealth, couldn't you solve the problems of the world? We think that, don't we? we? We gravitate towards those people. They're our hope. These are the ones to whom we build statues, or for whom, for whom we build statues, because they got the power, the ability to control things, because they have might and they can draw attention to themselves, and they bring healing. There's something significant about control and security and power. And Jesus turned those down. Interesting, isn't it? You ever really thought about that? Those people turn to idols, don't they, technically? 
Let's try. So you know, you put the statues up and everything, you, and That's once right. you become really wealthy and you don't need anything, you don't need God anymore. So you're. you're That's what happens, and I think that's. That's what Jesus was saying, that these things lead to idolatry. I mean, you, you, you've read these stories, haven't you? Uh, you know, somebody of modest means like myself, you know, wins the Georgia lottery and comes into $50 million, and in five years, it's all gone, and the person's a wreck. Uh, we've all seen people gain power in certain ways, either at work or at school or government, and that kind of power makes them blind to their own faults, and they end up doing great harm, and they can't recognize it. That's, that's the scariest part about it. They cannot recognize it. That's idolatry. And I think that's what Jesus turned down. If you can turn down those three temptations, you can walk away from any idolatry and live totally by the freedom of love towards God and towards others. That's what he was telling us. And what the Grand Inquisitor says, believe, believe me, people will, will crucify you when they finally realize this is what you're doing. Well, at the end of the story, Christ never speaks during it, just like there at his trial in the crucifixion never speaks, to the people, that is. And uh, the Grand Inquisitor sort of pleads with him, say something, and doesn't say anything. And Jesus gets up. I love this etching here by a guy named Akinbrock, I, 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 I believe it is. Uh, Jesus gets up and he walks away, but he kisses the lifeless lips of the Grand Inquisitor, and then walks away, and that's all that happens. That's it, that's the Grand Inquisitor. Raises a th great theological, real-life kind of issue for all of us. Which do we value more? Freedom or security? Or responsibility or control? Well, again, Alalusa is totally receptive, totally absorbing everything that Ivan is telling him. He is not defensive. He is not irritated. He is not put off by what Ivan is saying because no, he knows there's some truth to this. He doesn't have a ready-made answer, a sort of snap approach to these profound questions. He knows he has to deal with these issues. And the person that helps Ivan, I mean, excuse me, Alalusa deal with these issues is Father Zosima or Zazima. You know, being from Texas, I'm limited in pronouncing, pronouncing uh, Russian, but I've always said Zosima. Some people say Zosima. But Zosima is one of the elder monks there in the monastery, and Alalusha was his novice for a little over a year. And after this scene here with, uh, in Pro and Contra, we find out about the life story of Father Zosima and why he was so influential upon Alalusha. As a young man, he was wild and, and crazy and uh, did criminal acts and was in hiding and there was a plot to kill him and uh, he uh, you know, was uh, on the run a lot. Uh, you know, he, he, he was on the drift. He was a, a lawless person. And in the middle of Zosima telling his story, he quotes from John chapter 12, unless a corn falls to the ground, kernel of corn falls to the ground, and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. As something that began to change in his own life, that when a man here breaks into his house and is going to kill him, his whole life flashes in front of him, and it doesn't happen. He is not killed, 
and he realizes that he is now different and a seed is planted into his life. And that seed eventually flowers when he becomes a monk. He is one of the most respected monks there in the monastery. And uh, he had an incredible sensitive perspective on people. He, he could read them. People from all around the country would come to his cell there for guidance and counseling. And as soon as they would come, his, his alertness and acuity of the human soul was so perceptive, he knew exactly what they were dealing with. He could just see it on their face. And his advice was always the appropriate device that led to their healing and growth and so on. So he became very famous. However, though, not all of his fellow monks, though, liked him. Ferapont, and uh, I don't know if you can see that very well. This is Zosima, and that's Ferapont. Ferapont, uh, it's interesting that Dostoevsky plays a lot on this particular relationship. This is one of the subplots. Ferapont is an ascetic, just like Zosima, uh, committed to celibacy and chastity and poverty, uh, just like Zosima but about as diametrically opposite as you can get. It was said of Fairpont that he had this rare ability to see devils everywhere. Like I see a devil on your shoulder right there. I, I see one over there sitting down. I see a devil in your heart. You, you, must, you must be devilish. That Fairpont had this ability to judge people, to castigate them for the evil that's in their life. And so wherever he went, he was always denouncing evil. He was always you know, pointing out who were the bad people, the wicked people, the cruel, the malicious people, that wherever he was, he was the standard of right and wrong, of good and bad, of the gospel and paganism. And he bore that. He did it proudly because he felt like he had a mission. And consequently, wherever he went, people just ran away from him. They fled him and nobody went to his cell looking for counsel and advice. Nobody went to him when they were in great suffering or loss. They went to Zosima. And this was a great rivalry between the two. And the monastery was sort of split between Fairpont and Zosima. Well, uh, Alalusha has one more visit with Zosima. And Zosima tells him to leave the monastery, to take the gospel into the world. And it was rather traumatic on him because Alalusha wanted the security of the monastery. But here his guide, his elder, his mentor told him to go into the world. Well, just, I forget how many, how long, maybe a couple of days later, uh, Zosima dies. He's an old man by this time anyhow, but he dies. And it was said of monks, oh, i got to hurry up, it was said of monks that uh, they didn't stink when they died, when they decayed. Well, within hours, his body, his body began to stink. Fairpont uses that as proof that he was a fake monk. That he, Fairpont, was the true monk. The contrast between the two is dramatic. Fairpont wants division, separation, clarity, you know, demarcations between good and bad and right and wrong. Everything is lined up crystal clear. But Zosima, though, wants unity, compassion, participation, a sense of tenderness with everything in the world. I wish I had time to read this to you. And, and they're wonderful. They just, they just, they'll just lift you off the ground at the end of this. He talks about whether a person can love the world and love their enemy. And his says, yes. 
Love everything. Love the animals. Love the, and then you should, all of us, and I'll conclude with this, even though I, I'm going to skip a big part of it at the end of it, but we should all develop the ability of throwing ourselves on the ground and weeping and hugging the earth. Bring it all into your heart. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Throw ourselves and bear the suffering of the world. Cry for the grief of the world. Don't let these people walk by without them, you know, being, uh, without them affecting us and, and moving us and us being drawn to these kind of people who need hope, who need co compassion, who need faith and love. And this is what, what, what Zosima is telling Alalusa. And this is what he does. Give me one minute, and I know many of you need to go. At the end, there's a movement. It's as moving as anything in the whole novel. There's a little boy, poor, sickly. He's been bullied and attacked. And Dimitri actually abused his father by dragging him by his beard. And he is shamed, and he is afraid. And, uh, you know, all the other boys pick on him, and he gets sick, and he dies. Alalusa is at the funeral for this little boy and all these other boys are gathered there. That's the trial. Um, here it is. Alalusha there, I mean, Alusha dies and at the, at the funeral afterward he meets with all these other boys and uh, they, they feel guilty for bullying him. They feel sorrowful for what they've done to this, this innocent, sickly little boy. And Alalusa not condemning, not judging them, he brings them in. I kind of like that scene. He's hugging all of them. And he says to them this wonderful kind of admonition of how to go on into their lives, how to grow up and be godly people. But the, the essence of it is this. Don't be afraid of life. We have the power to love the world, to throw ourselves down and wet it with our tears. We have the capacity to suffer with people. We have the the, the ability not to run from the horrors of the world, but to embellish them, embrace them with the gospel. And that's, that's the Christian life that Dostoevsky is. And, and that's the answer to the rebellion. The Christian idea is not that, yes, this all makes sense, but the Christian idea is it will make sense by loving it. It will make sense by being compassionate towards it. And so may we wet the earth with our own tears. I'll conclude this with a prayer. Help us, O oh Lord, not to be afraid. Not to be afraid. This I pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.